You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Revelation chapter 7 shows us that there is hope in the gospel even until the very end. As I've shared with you before, in teaching the book of Revelation, I am teaching it from a futurist, literal, uh, chronological standpoint and uh, scheme. And uh, this comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. As I've said before, I believe the book of Revelation is the only book that comes with its own divine outline. In chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus told John to write the things that he had seen up to that point. That was Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. He then said, write the things which are. And John, as he sat there, a prisoner on the island of Patmos, would have been able to imagine in his mind's eye the present seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2 and 3. Those are the things which are. And then he says, and write the things which will take place after this. And in chapter 4, verse 1, the phrase, after this, is repeated twice. And so we go up in chapter 4 and 5 with John into the heavenly realm and see the throne room of God, the events surrounding the throne of God. And then we see in chapter 5 a scroll held in the hand of God. And no one is found worthy to open the scroll. It causes John to weep until Jesus steps forward as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain. And he is found worthy to take the scroll, which I believe to be the title deed of planet Earth. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And in chapter 6, he begins to loosen the seven seals. In fact, in chapter 6, he breaks open the first six seals. The seventh seal is going to lead to the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is going to lead to seven bulls. So really all of the action, you know, or most of the action is found inside of the seventh seal. And so John, the revelator, has been rushing through the first six seals so that we can get to the seventh seal and see what is going to happen on planet Earth. Now, in those first six seals, we saw some significant things revealed. A worldwide political leader who would rise to the scene. He was riding on his white horse, it says in Revelation 6. Secondly, we saw a military catastrophe, the growing military might of this worldwide leader clashing with enemies and resistance, and the people in the world begin to slay one another uh, with that modern warfare. And then we see a collapse in many senses of the economy, people in great poverty and despair, unable to really provide for themselves well. And then we see that people, as a result of all of those elements, begin to die. A quarter of the earth's population will die 
during this horrible moment in human history. And then John goes back into the heavenly scene where he sees the fifth seal opened. And in seeing the fifth seal, he sees the souls of those who have been martyred for their belief in the word of God and because of their witness and their testimony in the gospel. And they are asking God, when are you going to avenge our blood? And God says, in a little while longer. He clothes them with white and says that there are still those who are going to die for their faith. The sixth seal is then opened and worldwide cataclysmic natural disasters begin to take place. True acts of God. The sun darkened, the moon looking red like blood. It's a horrible moment. And the kings and notable figures in the earth begin to hide themselves and cry out for the rocks to cover them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. And so that's where we come to in Revelation chapter 7. We closed out chapter 6 with the resistors on earth saying, who can stand in the great day of their wrath? Well, in chapter 7, we discover who can stand. There will be a righteous remnant that gives their life to the Lord and walks with him and is used wonderfully by him. But I started out this teaching by saying this chapter shows us that the gospel gives hope till the very end. We're going to see that in this chapter. He says after this, and by the way, this is just simply a parenthesis. We're not reading yet of the seventh seal being opened. We'll get to that. But here in chapter 7, he says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Obviously a, a, an expression there, the four corners of the earth. Holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now, of course, as you read this, you understand that just as God created the heavens and the earth, here he is messing with and influencing the heavens and the earth. And these angels begin to hold back the four winds. And just imagine the crisis that would come from that. The energy crisis that would come from that. And the agricultural crisis that would come from that. And so... Uh, he holds back the wind for a period of time. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So this angel comes down, holding the seal of God in his hand. And he cries out to these four angels and says, Hey, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God with this seal on their foreheads. Now this, of course, brings us all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 4 when Cain murdered his brother Abel and believed that because he had been banished and judged by God 
that someone was going to rise up and avenge Abel's death by killing Cain. And Cain cried out to God and God said, no, I'm going to put my seal upon you. Now, that just gives us the indication that God is able to seal a person. We don't really know what that looked like for Cain. And we know that he was not sealed as a servant of God, but he was sealed in judgment. But still, that was the grace of God, the ability of God, though, to seal a person. And here, this angel says, we need to seal the servants of our God. Now, we don't know if this seal is physical, if it is, you know, actually going to be visible to anybody else besides God or from the heavenly perspective. It certainly says that they are going to seal their foreheads. But obviously, as we move out through the book, we're going to uh, get to a place where there is going to be the seal or the mark of the Antichrist. And these people are not sealed in that sense, but they are sealed as servants of our God. And this is how they are sealed, as servants of our God. And really what you see immediately after the sealing of this group of 144,000, which we'll talk about in a moment, but what you observe immediately after the sealing of this group of people is a major uh, reaping of a harvest. Uh, of course, not physically, but of souls. There are many people, a great multitude that no one can number, who will be saved, who will give their lives to the Lord. So I believe what's happening here is that God himself is sealing 144,000 super witnesses, so to speak, who will be used by God during this period of great tribulation to preach the message of the gospel. Uh, there won't be language barriers. There will be, uh, you know, no fundraising or, you know, anything like that. These people will just hit the world hard with the message of the gospel. Imagine, in one sense, 144,000 Paul the Apostles. You just imagine that and you imagine what's going to happen here. The, these people are going to preach with absolute power on earth. And I believe that these people will be uh, Israelites. They'll be of Jewish descent sealed uh, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And why do I say that? Because it says in verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And so, uh, you know, who do I believe these 144,000 people are? Do I believe these are the Jehovah's Witnesses? No. Do I believe these are the Seventh-day Adventists? No. Do I believe these are any other group other than actual Israelite people who are saved? No. I believe that it's the people from these tribes that are mentioned 
who will be designated as God's super witnesses here on earth during that moment in time. And I think, you know, as you read the Bible, you discover that God has to, in one sense, turn his attention once again to the nation of Israel. And there will be a moment here in time, during this time, which is called in other places the time of Jacob's trouble, where God is dealing with the people of Israel, dealing with the people of Jacob. There will be this moment in time where the gospel becomes effective inside of the nation of Israel. The church at this point is absent. We've been called home to be with the Lord. But still, that means uh, that there are people who need to be introduced to the gospel. And so I believe very strongly that at this moment, God is going to call out for himself 144,000 super witnesses who will, uh, in a wonderful way, preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this, this fills me with wonderful hope. Obviously, during the tribulation, there will be many people who reject the gospel. There will be many people who reject Christ. Just as there are people who reject Christ now, there will be people who reject Christ then. But it encourages my soul to see that there will be those who are serving the Lord during this tribulation period. And I want you to see the results of their ministry. It says in verse 9, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. First of all, this is an, an enormous amount of people. We, we see it's a great multitude that no one could number in verse 9. This is wonderful. This will be a huge response to the gospel. A great harvest. Just absolutely wonderful. And, and it's possible, of course, that this response to the gospel could potentially be greater than the almost 2,000 years that the church has been in existence. And you think of the days of Pentecost there when, when the Spirit was poured out upon of groups much smaller than this, 120 disciples gathered together in that upper room and the Spirit was poured out and they began to speak and to prophesy and, and Peter stood up and quoted from Joel chapter 2 and preached his first gospel message. And... 3,000 souls that day were added to the church. You think about the glory of that moment, how spontaneous, how powerful, how spirit-infused, and how wonderful. And imagine that kind of response occurring today. Imagine that kind of response happening during this period, during this great tribulation. And I believe that the chaotic conditions that the world is in will just cause people's hearts to be ripe and ready for this message, for this message. And so what a wonderful reality, the great multitude. And you see there that these people come from every 
nation, and all tribes and peoples and languages. You know, missions ministry is in many ways so difficult. You know, you will want to go to a people whose language you do not know. You've got to, at the very least, acquire translators. You know, you've got to reach the nationals and establish a church. And there are all these great roadblocks and difficulties, not to mention the raising of finances and, and you know, establishing a plan and a support team and all of that. And it can take many, many years to see any fruit in some of the modern mission works that we're a part of. And we should do them, and we should be all in on these missionary works and endeavors. But there will be a shift that takes place during this time where these 144,000s are absolutely, incredibly fruitful unto God. And so every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they'll be clothed in white robes, palm branches, which are a symbol of victory, and they'll be crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just a powerful reality. These people crying out, believing in the salvation of God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just beautiful. And all the angels, verse 11, were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so, there's this prayer, the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fall on their faces and they worship God for, for what they're seeing. This great response to the gospel during these last days. These angels begin to worship and I want you to see their song. Listen to what they ascribe to God. They say, number one, blessing. Blessing. There will be seven things that they they ascribe to God. Number one is blessing. You know, that blessing belongs to God. That blessing is wrapped up in God. That blessing is God's to give. And that blessing is ultimately only found inside of God. What a wonderful thing to worship the Lord for. Number two, glory. Glory. You know, mankind spends so much time trying to cultivate his own glory. But ultimately, glory resides inside of the presence of God himself. It says of Jesus that, that we beheld his glory. And, you know, for any person, any man, any woman, any ministry, it is so important that your life is not designed to find glory outside of God, but to look to God for the, the glory, that the glory belongs to him. It does not belong to you. It does not belong to me. It belongs to him. So many people spend their life trying to develop their own glory. And he says wisdom. They say wisdom. Wisdom. You know, just that the, the understanding and the direction and the wisdom that we need, it comes from God. I can't tell you how many times God's simple word 
has granted me the wisdom that I've needed, or his simple voice has granted me the wisdom that I needed. And, you know, the good head that can be on the shoulders of any person who will seek the God of the Bible. He has wisdom. And thanksgiving, they say. I mean, ultimately, the credit, the thanks, it belongs to him. Ultimately, everything that we have to be thankful for, we should be saying, Lord, thank you for providing for me. Thank you for caring for me. And, and then he says, number five, they say honor, number five. Honor belongs to God. Ultimately, all of our reverence, our fear, our respect, it should be directed ultimately to the Lord. I mean, this is why when we are honoring parents or we're honoring employers or we're honoring one another, ultimately the reason we honor one another is because honoring honor belongs to God. It belongs to him. We want to honor him and we honor him by honoring these people that he has told us to honor. And number six, power. Power. You think about the the weakness and the frailty that would exist inside of our lives without the power of God. That by his word, all things are held together. Think about what the, the world would be like should God just simply let go. We would have no power. We would have no authority. And then, and then number seven, might. Real strength. All of these things belong to our God, the angels sing, forever and ever. Amen. So this is a beautiful parenthesis from John here as he's giving us the book of Revelation. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So the question of the elder to John is simply, hey, this, this multitude clothed in white robes with the palm branches and, and sang with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yeah, these people from every tribe and from every tongue and from every nation and peoples, you know, who are these people? And John said to them, he said, Sir, you know. He said, I said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And so this is where we come to understand that this great revival actually occurs within the context of the great tribulation. It actually occurs within the context of that final seven-year window of catastrophe and judgment being poured out upon the earth. And so again, it just humbles my heart and encourages my soul that this will be a time of great revival on earth. He says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Just absolutely glorious. And, you know, for you, you should know that it's the blood of the Lamb that cleanses. It's the blood of the Lamb that makes us white. It's the blood of the Lamb that makes us pure. Therefore, and he's, he begins to sing this song to the Lord. He says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne 
will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You can see here that paradise is restored for these martyrs, restored for this, this great multitude who respond to the message of the 144,000 super witnesses. And you see these wonderful things. First of all, they serve God night and day in his temple. You know, there will never be a moment in eternity where we are not serving the Lord. This is what we're made to be. And this isn't some kind of slavery or forced servitude. This is out of the abundance and overflow of our hearts in that, pre in that place and in the presence of God. Just simply serving God day and night. And, and notice that he who sits on the throne will shelter them, verse 15, with his presence. Right, this is what people long for. Have you ever in a moment of worship or in a moment of prayer, you've just felt the presence of the Lord? It's been so strong with you. It's been so thick with you. Have you ever had that moment where you just sense and have received the presence of the Lord upon your life? Well, here, what we understand is that in that place, oh, the presence of the Lord will be thick uh, and constant. And what a, what a glorious place that's going to be to just be basking in the afterglow of God's presence, just enjoying the goodness of God. No trial, no sin, no difficulty, no struggle. What a hope we have. What a hope we have. And, and what a perspective for us now today to just simply understand that as hard as things may be here and as difficult as things may be here, a day is coming when we will be able to rejoice with him forever and ever. Of them, he says in verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. There will be no worry. They'll be fully provided for. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Ultimately and completely and finally, Jesus will be shepherding his people, ministering to us, caring for us, feeding us, tending to us, uh, directing us, leading us, guiding us. He says he will guide them to springs of living water. We're just going to drink in the presence of God, this living water full of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Talk about God dealing fully and completely with the curse. The curse that brought such pain and suffering and agony. God is going to deal with it completely to the point that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We'll have such perfect perspective in that moment. Now, Some would ask, does this mean that we're no longer going to miss those who we have lost, those that never believed, who are separated from God for all of eternity. When our tears are wiped away, does that mean that we simply forget them? I don't know that that's the case. I think it may be that our love and our perspective will be so pure that our perspective of what sin is, is so right, that we'll detest it so wholly that our tears will be removed and we'll just be so satisfied 
with the judgments and the decisions of God. But what a wonderful place to have every tear wiped away from our eyes. This is the hope that we have in Christ. And what a beautiful parenthesis here in Revelation 7 to see the great revival that will occur on earth during that great tribulation. And in our next study, we'll see the seventh seal opened and uh, the wrath of God poured out upon this world. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.